You may have seen from the emails that we send out from the office that over the past week and a half, we've had three deaths in our church family. Two of those deaths were very sudden and unexpected. Uh, one was a father and a husband who died suddenly in his mid-50s. Another was a young man just starting his life uh, who died in his mid-20s. And when deaths like that happen, I think the question, at least I tend to ask myself, is why? Right? Why, why did that have to happen? When I talk to parishioners who are diagnosed with cancer or with a terminal illness, it's the same question that we all ask. Why? Why does God allow this? doesn't seem right. This is a question I think we all understand because it's a question that we've all asked, either with our own suffering or with the suffering of our loved ones. I think it's especially hard when we see someone suffering who is a, a good person, right? You know those people, the, those who, who truly love their neighbor, uh, who fear God, they shun evil. When we see them suffering, it doesn't make sense. They should be the ones being blessed. But when they suffer, we're left to struggle to understand the ways of God. Now today, we read from the book of Job. That was our Old Testament reading. It comes from the 38th chapter of, of Job. And Job, more so than any other book in the Scriptures, um, approaches this question uh, about suffering. It begins with Job. We are told Job is a, a good man. He is righteous. In fact, we are told in the book that there is no one like him. He is the best of the best. If anyone deserves to be blessed, it's Job. And yet, we are told that all of a sudden in his life one day, his wealth is taken from him, his house is burned, all of his children are killed, his wife grows bitter and tells him to curse God, and Job ends up with boils all over his body, sitting on a garbage heap, scratching his boils with the broken pieces of pottery. This picture of immense suffering. At one point, Job curses the day that news was brought to his father that he had been born. He hammers, hammers on the doors of the universe, demanding that God give an account of himself, that God straighten things out. But God doesn't seem to answer. And Job feels abandoned by God. There's this one incredible passage in chapter 23, and Job says this as he's crying out to God but receiving no answer. He says, If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling. If I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. It's this picture of utter desolation that Job has. 
All Job gets are three friends who, after some polite silence, begin to lecture Job. They tell Job that he must have sinned, and they want him to fess up because they say God is just, and this would not be happening to someone who didn't deserve it. But Job, he says no. He keeps insisting on his innocence. So then finally, after 37 chapters of talk, 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 after 37 chapters of empty jargons, we are told that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And this was our reading today. The Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. Eugene Peterson, in his translation, The Message, he says, he translates it this way, God comes out of the violent wind, comes out of the great storm. So the Lord comes to speak to Job. And this is what he says to him. And again, this is part of our reading today. God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me, or you shall answer me. Now, I think this is a remarkable verse. It's remarkable. And the reason why I think it's remarkable is because it underscores one of the great dignities of us as human beings, and that is God addresses us. God tells Job to come to his full height, to, to roll up his sleeves, to think clearly because he wants to have some words with Job. Now you can say what you want, but that is a, a rare dignity. I mean the hills and the mountains, they may see thousands upon thousands of generations come and go. But God never addresses them. Elephants and tigers and leopards, they may be faster and stronger than we are, but they are never called to rise so that they may be addressed by God. So there's this accounting. Stand up, Job, on your feet. I've got some things I want to say to you. And then... God speaks for four chapters. And here's just a few things he says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who laid its cornerstone? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb? And this goes on and on. Job, tell me where the snow is stored. Sure, surely you know that. And I guess you were the one who taught the hawk to soar and the deer to give birth to a fawn. And you know, I'm sure, where light and darkness have their home so that when they are lost, you can bring them back. And I guess, Job, you're the one who gave the horse its strength and its might. It goes on 
and on. And, and at one point, and this is kind of an, an intermission in these four chapters, Job covers his mouth and he says, I have, I have talked out of turn. But God goes on and God introduces these two monster beasts, the behemoth, which sounds very much like a rhinoceros, and then the Leviathan, which in some way sounds like a dragon, but it also sounds like a crocodile from the Nile. And God says, I, I suppose that you take the Leviathan for a walk, like you put a poodle on a leash. Four chapters of this. And you get the sense when you read this that there is a swagger to God. And the question you have after reading these, these four chapters is what is the point of this? This trip through nature that God takes Job on. What's the point? And is this pastorally sensitive to Job? I mean, can you imagine me going to the home of someone who's just lost a loved one or who's had their business go bankrupt, and I sit down and I show them a picture of a hippopotamus? I'm not sure they'd be happy with that kind of pastoral care. So what's the point of this? Why does God take Job on this trip through creation? Well, when you read the commentators, they nearly all say that the book of Job does not answer the question of human suffering directly. That it's, it's not trying to answer that question. Instead, they say the message is something different. You see, they argue that the message that God is giving Job through this tour of creation, that the message or, or purpose of this is so that Job might understand his smallness. His smallness. Not his nothingness, but his smallness. It's not that God wants to humiliate Job. That, that's not the case. No, rather, Job needs to understand that this universe is not all about him. The commercials may say, we'll do it your way, or this buds for you, or the consumer is God. But it's all lies. We are, in the total scheme of things, very small. Our understanding of things, even if you're a brilliant person, has huge limits. And there is this need for us to understand our smallness. Again, not our nothingness, but our smallness. One of the puzzling things when you read Job is that Job, as a matter of fact, seems satisfied by these words from God. He seems to, to learn his lesson. If you go to chapter 42, right after these four chapters of God speaking, Job responds there by saying, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now again, my commentators tell me that this is a really difficult verse to translate, but most of them are dissatisfied with this notion of Job despising himself because they say that there's no call for it. 
I mean, God doesn't despise Job. In fact, he praises Job. He blesses Job. And so this response from Job, it gets translated in different ways. I despise my words. That's one way it's translated. Or I have melted before God. But there's this one translation I really like, and a number of commentators commend this. And it's, it's this translation, where Job, after hearing all that God has to say, responds with, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. In the scriptures, there is this central note that God is very great. And our only posture before him is to be humility, humbleness. You see, when you come to a book like Job, what we are meant to take from it is that all of us, at different times in our lives, we will have what Tom Long calls Gethsemane moments. Gethsemane moments. These are moments when you you don't understand what's going on, when your picture of what the universe ought to be, it completely conflicts with your experience. Might be your own suffering, the suffering of someone you love, but you don't understand what's going on. It doesn't seem right. And in those moments, you can either dismiss God or you can strive to be a human being who in the midst of pain that you don't understand, trust God to be God. You see, you either live in a world where God is a human construct, or you learn to live in a world where God is God. And in that world, you understand your smallness, and you know gratefulness. And I say that not, not trying to say that God somehow dismisses standards of, of good and bad, that they're not part of his game plan. That, that's not it at all. Rather, what Job teaches us is that there are lots of places where we have no comprehension of how and why and where it's all going. And it's at those times we have to learn how to be small, and learn how to trust God. There was a, a 17th century English priest and poet named Thomas Traherne, and he has these wonderful meditations. And in one of them, he talks about creation, the world. And he talks about how in creation, everything is there to praise God. And he says that we're there too to praise God. We're part of the great choir. And then he says this, you are never what you ought till you go out of yourself and walk among them. The, the them being the rest of creation. You are never what you ought till you go out of yourself and see your small part in the great choir. And that choir is not singing praises to you, but to the Great One. 
we are to understand our part, our role as bearing witness to God. We are to say, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. Comforted that the whole thing doesn't rest on me. Trusting that the God that I know will bring this to a good end. You know, in our gospel reading, the disciples on that Galilean lake, they were awed. They see Jesus still the waves and the storm. And they're awed. And they say, who is this? That's their response to this event that they can't understand, that they can't comprehend. Who is this that the sea and the wind obey him? And we might take that a step further and not see Jesus only stilling the sea, but to see him on the cross and say, who is this that he would be crucified for us? Who is this? And then we should go into the garden and see the stone rolled away and say, Who is this, this one who has been risen from the dead for us? In the midst of suffering that we don't understand, we're called to come humbly before God. And that is incredibly hard to do. Um, It's a struggle, but we're called to do it to entrust both our lives and the lives of all those we know, to entrust them into the hands of a God that we believe with all our heart as being worthy of our confidence. And we do that because we have seen him in Jesus Christ as being a good God. And so we say with Job, as best as we can in these Gethsemane moments, I will be quiet, comforted that I am dust. Amen.